If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn it on or turn in it, whichever the right case is, to Matthew chapter 6. If you're using the, the Bible in the pew rack or in the chair underneath, you want to turn to page 811, you'll kind of be in the right spot of where we're going to be this morning. We've already mentioned a couple of times we're talking about prayer and doing sort of a little series on prayer. So let me start this morning by just sharing with you what I would call sort of three prayer realities, sort of realities related to prayer. First one would be this, according to the Pew Research Center, an organization that studies a lot of things, they said, and this study I think is about four years old now, 2014, they would tell us that prayer seems to be a fairly important thing in the United States, okay? That on a typical day, 55% of Americans will take some time during that day to pray, Another 16% of Americans will take time every week to pray, and another 6% of Americans will take time at least once a month to pray. If you add all of those together, you'll find out that more than three-quarters of Americans think this prayer thing is important, that there is value in us investing some time and effort into praying. And that's not insignificant. Now, the second reality about prayer to me I'd love to tell you I have a study. I'd love to tell you I have all kinds of data. I can give you statistics. This is more what we would call anecdotal. This is from my experience. So this is another prayer reality from where I look at things. And that is I don't think I've ever met a person when I've had a conversation with them about prayer who has ever said, man, I know how to pray. I have got it so nailed. I am the expert on prayer. I've never met anyone who does that. That was sort of underlined to me a couple of years ago. We did a, a series back in 2015, January 2015, on prayer. And so I bought a bunch of books related to prayer and was reading those. And, and a couple of the books that I found very, very helpful, books that I, I've gone back to a number of times to kind of help in my own personal prayer life. What struck me is both those books start with the authors saying, here's our struggles in prayer. Here's all the things we really struggle with praying. That's a reality. And I'm not, you know, I could say let's turn the lights up. Let's shine a spotlight on each of you and go around the room and say, are you a prayer expert? So, Josh, are you a prayer expert? And how many of us are going to want to just kind of, I got to go to the restroom right now and I'm leaving? That's a truth. Now, the third reality of prayer maybe is a combination of those two, or really the fact that we say prayer is important, but yet it's a struggle that kind of brings it together. So, the third prayer reality would be, basically comes from the words of a man by the name of J.I. Packer and his co-author, a woman by the name of Carolyn Nystrom. They wrote a book on prayer, and in their book of prayer, they wrote this. The paradox here is that while prayer is unquestionably natural, necessary, and important for Christian people, it's important to us, it, is, it constantly proves in practice to be the very opposite of plain sailing. Now, to me, those realities raise a question. I mean, how do we do this thing? We know we're supposed to pray, we're, we have some sense that prayer is important, that there is some value in doing it, but, but how do we do it? I mean, I, I am not a, a person, you know, I'm not a, a, a boat person, 
But one time I did have the opportunity to be in what's known as the Puget Sound in the Seattle area out on a little boat. And by a little boat, I mean the boat was about 18 or 19 feet long. And there was a super tanker literally coming through the Puget Sound. I don't know if you have ever experienced the wake of a super tanker in an 18 or 19 foot boat, but it's not exactly pleasant. So how do you pray when it feels like you're in this little boat and all that's coming at you are super tanker waves? How do you do that? So really what I want us in a sense to do this morning is to kind of ask the question, what do we need to do or how do we approach prayer so that instead of it feeling it's hard and it's a struggle, that you and I can grow in prayer? That this thing that we say is important, that we actually can do it in a sense that says, hey, this is a blessing in my life. This is a good thing in my life instead of a constant struggle. So really the question, how do we pray? Now, to do that, to kind of answer that question, really we're going to walk through some very, in one sense, familiar words. They're for, hopefully they're familiar because we read them already and we sang them already. But we want to walk through the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, that math, the passage in Matthew 6, what I want us to do is kind of identify, kind of see what I would call sort of three building blocks. Three blocks that Jesus kind of offers us to say, hey, if you build your prayer life on these things, you can have the kind of prayer life you're going to want to have. You can move forward in prayer. You can grow in prayer. Okay? So three building blocks this morning. Building block number one, how do I build my prayer life? Well, this is going to sound very obvious, but know who you pray to. Okay? If you want to build your prayer life, it starts very simply with knowing who do you pray to. It's probably obvious, and I do say a lot of obvious things, but let me just kind of underline, it's probably very obvious to say that prayer is not simply an exercise in you and I just simply downloading whatever's bubbling up inside us. Now, by saying that, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't download stuff that's going on inside us. In fact, I think we need to do that. But that's not all that prayer is. Prayer is so much more than that. And Jesus kind of says, hey, I want you to get that. I mean, the title of this series kind of underlines that prayer is a whole lot more than me just saying, here's what's going on in my life, boom. We call this conversations with the king. Ultimately, what prayer is, is you and I having a conversation with the one who is the King of kings and is the Lord of lords. It's us conversing with Him. Prayer is about sharing some things with God, yes, but it's more than that. Okay, ultimately, the target of prayer, if you're wondering, what's the target of prayer? The target of prayer, this target of what am, why am I going to have conversations with the King? Ultimately, the target of prayer is, is so that I am drawn in awe of the King but I'm also drawn in close intimacy with the King. That I want to be with Him because He wants to be with me. Now to help us see where Jesus is going to kind of get us to get to that target, this idea of know who you pray to, look at how the prayer begins. The first few words of Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. To move us in prayer, Jesus says, hey, before you do anything else, I want you to think about who it is you pray to, who this Father is. 
In a lot of ways, what we're looking at in the Lord's Prayer is kind of a, you could say it's a model or a pattern of prayer. It's kind of giving us some ideas of how we should pray. And Jesus says, if you want to figure out how you should pray, you need to start at the beginning by knowing who you pray to. So Jesus says, hey, let me be very clear right up front. Who you pray to is the Father in heaven. Now, it's a long weekend, so all of you, or most of you probably have Monday off, so I figure I can go extra long today because you've got a holiday, you know. I'm not right at this moment trying to lengthen the sermon, but I do want to make an observation. We can say, oh, we pray to our Father in heaven. Great, move on. Let's get to the next building block. How many of you have ever made a mistake by making an assumption? I don't want us to do that this morning. So what I want to do is, yeah, I know you know, it's the Father in heaven, let's move on. Before we move on, I just want to share with you three things about the Father in heaven so that you and I don't make the wrong assumptions. Because if we're really going to grow in prayer, we cannot make the wrong assumptions, okay? So thing number one that I think you and I need to know when we're going to approach prayer, approach this Father in heaven, is that the word Father implies close, intimate relationship. Okay, that's what it implies. There's something implied right there. It means we're to be close to Him. Okay, the word Father was not a word that would have been commonly used to refer to God when Jesus said, pray, Father in heaven, or our Father in heaven. It was unusual to use that word. So we're to have this conversation with this king, but Jesus calls Him Father. Why does He do that? Well, I think the short answer is to communicate to us that the one we converse with wants us to be close to Him. The uniqueness of the word Father says He wants us to be a part of His family. I want you to consider an incredible truth of the gospel. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins and then rose again, and then offered to us that we could be reconciled to God if we would simply repent of our sin and trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior. He says, if you do that, one of the things the Bible says is that you and I are adopted by God. God chooses us. God makes us a part of His family. We belong to Him. He is our Father. If you and I are going to grow in prayer, we need to understand right at the beginning that this king we come to to pray is not aloof, he's not mean, he's not distant. He literally is a father that is urging us, begging us in a sense, calling us to run to him and to climb up into his lap. Now, I realize some of you, maybe your relationship with your dad, that is so foreign to you. But that's what Jesus is telling us about this Father. He is someone we can run to and be in His lap. Second thing I want you to know about this Father, second thing so we don't make an assumption, is that the King created us for love and joy. Okay, He created us for love and joy. Now, let me unpack what we mean by that a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about God being transcendent. And I loved saying that word, so I had to figure out how to fit it into another sermon as quickly as possible. So here it is. I'm fitting it in. 
Okay, now by transcendent, that's a fancy theological word that tells us that God doesn't need us. Okay, that God is separate from us. He's complete and whole. He doesn't need us. Now here's the question. If He doesn't need us, why does He create us? I mean, a lot of us are like, if I don't need somebody, I don't want them in my space. So why would God, in a sense, create us and and put us in His space? Well, there's a really smart guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, not the previous presidential candidate. We're going back farther in time. Uh, We're going to go back to pre-Revolutionary War New England to a guy named Jonathan Edwards, and he said this. He said that God created us to share with us cosmic love and the joy of relationship. Now, what he's telling us is, hey, God, and you could call God the entire Godhead, the Trinity, so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the the Trinity, the triune God, among them possess and share with each other cosmic love and joy of relationship. The Trinity, because all three members of the Trinity have a part in creating us, created us to share with us love and joy. God created you so that you could be the recipient of His cosmic love. God created you and put you with other people so you could enjoy and be involved in the incredible joy of relationship. The Father or King we pray to wants those things for you. Okay, Brian, could you do me a... It's the joy of allergies or something, isn't it? So we'll keep going. So need num- or, or thing number three I want you to know about this King. Okay, He desires to give those things to you, but here's another thing. The king will answer our prayers in huge ways even if we don't get our prayers right. If you don't get everything right in your prayer life, God can still answer and answer in huge ways. Okay? Given that this is the Memorial Day weekend, let me just read to you some thoughts on prayer from a Civil War soldier who died at Gettysburg. When they came up upon him, they found in his pocket some things written related to prayer. And this is what he wrote. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might humbly learn to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I hoped for. Almost to despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among men most richly blessed. You know, 
here's the thing about this king we pray to. You and I may not know what to ask for. You and I may not get it right in asking for something. But God can still answer. God can and does still answer. And that is a huge thing I think we need to build our prayer lives off of. Because if we're not experts and we don't get it right, He does. He can. Building block number two, what should we build our prayer lives on? Building block number two would be this. We need to prioritize the preeminence of the king. Okay? We need to prioritize the preeminence of the king. If we're going to do this prayer thing right, that's what we've got to do. Now, verse 9, we're kind of going to shift here. This second sort of building block goes from sort of the addressee to to the content. So all of verse 9 says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Now, verse 9 contains really the first of what will be six prayer requests that make up this prayer. But the people that study these things and structurally and try to understand will tell us that these six weren't just kind of put in random order. It's not like Jesus said, well, hey, um, let's cut up on a, let's write down six prayer requests on a sheet of paper and then cut them up and stir them up and just pull them out randomly and we'll just put them in any order. No, what it seems to be is Jesus was very deliberate in the order he listed these requests. Almost to make sure that the prayer, everything of the prayer is based flowing out of this request. And I don't believe it would be an overstatement to say that our prayer lives should revolve around or flow out of that request. Father, hallowed be Your name. Now the request when we say, God, we want Your name to be hallowed means that we're praying for God to be viewed and treated as holy and awesome. When we pray the words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, we are saying, God, we want You to be honored. We want You to be glorified. We want You to be exalted above all else. But why do we start there? Why did Jesus start there? Why should you and I choose to kind of make that what we revolve our prayer life around? Why that request? Why is that so critical? I want you to consider a couple things with me. I believe the best thing for us, the best thing that could happen in any of our lives is for God to be treated as God, for God to be viewed as God. Part of the reason I would say that is I want you to think back. I mean, who do we just say this Father King is? The one who wants to give us stuff. The one who wants to answer our prayers. The one who wants to bring His goodness into our lives. We need, if we're going to receive these incredible things from Him, He needs to be that. And I want you to contrast that with this thought, with this question. When do people get into trouble? When do you and I get into trouble? Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic and I don't want to offer too broad of a a generalization. But I think you can build the case to say that we get into trouble when we misplace God or when we treat God as less than He is. So where are you getting that from? Well, just think for a moment, and maybe you're not an expert on the Old Testament history. If you're not 
hey, you've got a long weekend. You could read a lot of the Old Testament this weekend. It's going to be hot outside, so you may as well be in the shade reading somewhere. But when did the people of Israel get in trouble? When they turned away from God and pursued idols. To translate that into our day and age and into our time, how is it, what happens in people's lives, your life, my life, when money or sex or health or success or all kinds of other things just become this huge thing in our lives? And when those become huge in our lives, they become sort of the object of our affections, the things we desire above all else. And what do they do? They can pull us away from God. Instead of us being close to Him, they can take us away. And folks, I guarantee you, if you and I get pulled away from God, we will be in trouble. One of the realities of life is that you and I face, whether we sense it or not all the time, is there is a huge competition for our hearts or our souls. There's a lot of things that are trying to pull at us to get us to go in their direction or in its direction. And when that happens, that can leave us really mixed up inside. What really matters? What really is important? It's twisted inside of me. But when I start praying by prioritizing the preeminence of the king, I'm doing a reordering work in my soul. I'm doing a reorienting work in my life. I am, in essence, reorienting myself to how life truly, ultimately will be. I mean, think about it for a second. How was the world when God created it? It's described at the end of Genesis 1 as very good. There's this picture of wonder and beauty and awe that is there. They got so distorted and disrupted and damaged by sin and destruction. All kinds of things going. Adam and Eve thought they needed this and then Adam and Eve's kids, you and me included, think, well, I need this and I need this and I need this. That pulls on us. But what if you and I stop and remember, how does the Bible end? What is the picture in Revelation 21 and 22? It is a picture of people being in the presence of God with people recognizing who God is. And the picture in Revelation 21 and 22 is a pretty sweet picture. When you and I pray, Father, hallowed be your name, we reorient ourselves out of the crud in the middle out of, as Dan said earlier, the unworthiness that just seems to be so much in us, to see fully the worthiness of God and to realize what work He's going to do in our lives so that we go from unworthy to having the full experience eternally of the worthiness of God and I'm made worthy and you're made worthy. Why pray that? That's why. Please do not miss what the Bible is saying at this point. You and I can ask God for a lot of things, and there are things we need to ask God for. But those aren't ultimate things. 
And if we're going to grow in prayer, we need to be driven and long for really ultimate desires. We need in the word of Psalm 27, 4, to pray like David. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. I mean, what should I give myself to in a sense? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I want Him. I desire Him. I'll seek Him. What each of us needs and what collectively we need is to desire God and what He wants so that He is exalted and there's nothing in my life more important than that. And you say, okay, how would that get expressed? I mean, if I really desire God, how does this hallowing of God's name get expressed? Well, look at verse 10 of the prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The preeminence of the king in part gets expressed when you and I say, what I long for, what I desire is his kingdom. What I long for is his will. Now, a whole lot more could be said about both of those, and at some point we probably should come back to this prayer because there's a ton in it to come back and really, instead of kind of being broad over, we really dig, drill down deep. But for right now, just the requests of verse 10, just to kind of simplify it in a sense, I think those requests are saying, hey, our lives need to be about, hey, I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to long to see the values of God lived out. See, when it says, your will be done, part of it is saying, God, it's not about what I desire. It's not about what I want. It's about what you want. And we can say, boy, we want to see God's kingdom come. You say, how does God's kingdom come into our community? It comes when God's people put put God's values and attributes on display. And the kingdom of God shows up. And God is hallowed and God is exalted. We can be a part of that. Now very quickly, let me just express, sort of address a practical issue. Every time we pray, do we need to say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In a sense, yes. And in a sense, no. Okay, the words of verses 9 and 10 are not some mantra that you and I must repeat like magic words because they are not magic words. Okay, so in a sense, we don't have to say them. But I know personally, one of the things that God has taught me through those books I mentioned earlier through pondering some things is how God in one sense has sort of stoked sort of the embers of my fire prayer by just having me pause so many times when I pray and just consider, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. It draws me and helps me prioritize the preeminence of the king, and I need that. Building block number three. If we're really going to build our prayer lives, we got to know who it is we pray to. We need to prioritize the preeminence of the king, and then block number three would be this, seek the king's provision. You and I need to seek the king's provision. Now, I I don't want to overbeat the drum, so to speak, but 
I do believe that prayer's got to be in shape, got to be informed and shaped in our lives by who it is we pray to. And I think when we pray, we should remember, hey, this is who the King is, and this is what He wants to do for us. See, when Jesus calls us to pray and lays out this model prayer, He's in part saying, you need to ask God for some things, and you can ask God for some things, because God wants to provide some things for you. He wants to give you some things. Now, very clearly, we need to make one point, though. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, you can look at it in your Bible in front of you. We need to acknowledge, you and I don't need to pray to tell God what our need is. So you say, why do we pray? If God already knows what we need, why would we pray? So that you and I would express our longing for God to show up, our longing for God to meet our needs. See, there are needs you and I should pray for. It's okay, what needs should you and I pray for? Well, let me suggest to you three real quick. Need number one, it's good for you and I to pray for life necessities. Okay, it's, it's okay to pray for life necessities. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 says what? Give us this day our daily bread. Clearly, verse 11 is telling us, hey, we have a need for food. It's good for us to pray for God to meet our need for food. I don't know where the practice of praying for a meal started, but certainly this verse kind of underlines maybe why we should do that. Because we're acknowledging, God, I need you to do some things. Now, because this is a model prayer, I don't think we should just limit this to say, well, the only thing you can pray, the only life necessity you need to pray for is food. I think we can join Martin Luther and say, hey, this is life necessities. It's telling us there are some things we need to pray for. So praying for things like our health or like shelter or like good government, those kinds of things. Pray for those. Ask God to provide those things. Those are needs God can meet. Those are needs God might want to meet and does meet in our lives. We can pray for that. Another need we can pray for relationships. One of the things like you and I need to pray for is relationships. Now you can say, where are you getting that from? Because the word relationship is not used in the Lord's Prayer. Well, look at verse 12 with me. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now if we're going to understand verse 12, there's some things in the background that I think we need to be mindful of. One of those background things would be this. Sin does a lot of damage. And one of the ways the damage and destruction of sin becomes apparent is in relationships. So quickly, I want you to think about a relationship you had or maybe a relationship you have that's kind of coming off the tracks, coming off the rails, so to speak. And if you and I were to do kind of a, a, an autopsy or, or an investigation, we might see that you know what? There's sin stuff that has created this problem in this relationship. There's sin things that have happened that have taken it off the rail. That's a reality. Another thing we need to have in the background here in verse 12 is that this, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, original, the sort of the primary audience of the Sermon on the Mount 
would be followers of Jesus, would be disciples, okay? Would be people who are trying to follow the Lord Jesus through life. In, in our day and age, what we would be talking about would be people who have turned from sin to God and have trusted the Lord Jesus as their Savior and they're seeking to follow Him. So the issue when it talks about forgiveness in verse 12, I'm going to get a little geeky here just for a minute. This is not talking about what we would maybe theologians would call judicial forgiveness. That would be the forgiveness that happens when I realize I need a Savior, I, try, I express to God, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. Sort of, we call that justification. We call that being saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, verse 12 isn't thinking about starting a relationship with Jesus. Verse 12 is sort of written in the context of, hey, we're a group of people, we're a group of followers of Christ, and we're together, and what do we do when sin shows up in our place? Dan referred to this as our house. What do you do when sin shows up in your house? What do you do with that? Well, if sin shows up in my house, I'm pretty sure I'm going to need to ask God to forgive me, and I better be forgiving others. See, without forgiveness, relationships don't last. One kick side story, very, very short. My great-great-grandfather served in the Northern Army in the Civil War. That is all I know about him. And the reason that's all I know about him is because an event happened in my family that literally ruptured the family apart. There was no grace. There was no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, relationships don't last. So this verse is saying, hey, look, it's going to come in. We need forgiveness. I know I need forgiveness. And when I consider that, this verse is saying we should be praying, hey, God, will you forgive me? But also, God, if I consider what you have done for me through Jesus on the cross for my good, giving me a reconciled relationship, giving me life with you, and I've already play, prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done. I want to live out your kingdom, and your kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness. So I better be about the business of forgiving others because I'm praying for your kingdom to come, and I want that. Need number three. What's the third need that he can meet? Well, spiritual strength. Okay? I wish this was not true, but it is true. You and I live in the midst of a spiritual battle. We have an enemy who is against us, who is stronger than we are. Not stronger than our king, but stronger than us. So what do we do in that context? Well, verse 13, what does it say? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The way the word used at the end there, from evil, you could translate that, deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is saying, look, life is a battle, and here's how you need to pray in light of that battle. Here's what you need to look to. In the first part of the verse, I think Jesus, in essence, is saying, hey, pray. Pray and say, God, God, will you help us not be led into temptations that will overcome us? Will you help us to see you've got all these escape routes for us? Would you let us see those? Would you not let us live our life thinking, I can do this? 
The second part of the verse is in essence saying, God, I know I need you to be a rescuing God because evil and the evil one are bigger and stronger than I am. So I literally need the resources and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. God, I need your power in me that you've given me in your spirit to be released. I need to long for that. We cannot do this battle on our own, but our King can, and we need to submit to Him. We need to pray to Him. I would love to tell you that because you chose to come to church on a day when we've got a heat advisory, even though six weeks ago people were mad at me we didn't cancel church because of snow and ice on the roads, go figure. I'd love to tell you that this last 35 minutes-ish has turned every single one of us into prayer experts. But that's not true, at least not yet. But what I do pray and what I do want to suggest is if you and I would build our prayer lives off these blocks, that we would truly embrace them and use them. I honestly believe we'll grow in prayer. And say, why? Why do you think that? Because this is the model that Jesus gave us. And if there is somebody who is an expert in prayer, it's Jesus. And just as sort of an addendum to the message, you know what Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years? He's been praying and interceding for us. He is the expert on prayer. And He's offering us a model to follow, inviting us to find smooth sailing in that sense of prayer so that we can truly know and be in the presence of the King. Would you pray with me?